Hi ladies, welcome back. I wanted to do an extra mini shear this week addressing the origins of our custom to read the Haftorah. And I think this will help give us some more richness and some more context for why we're learning what we're learning every week and also show us that this is a very important part of our history. It's deeply embedded in our sources and um, just help us get a better, a better grip on why we're doing what we're doing. So the Haftorah is a selection from our Nevi'im that we read every week. It's read in addition to the Torah reading on Shabbos, and it's also read on special occasions like fast days and holidays. Haftorahs come from both the Nevi'im Rishonim, so the earlier prophets, and the Nevi'im Acharonim. They more commonly come from the earlier prophets than the later ones, um, but as we'll see this week, they, they can come from the later prophets as well. I want to make a note about classifying the Nevi'im as either Rishonim or Acharonim. So the Rishonim are usually the longer Sfarim. They're the ones that'll be earlier in uh, the Nevi'im books of your Tanakh. Those include Yoshua, Shoftim, Sifrei Shmuel, Sifrei Malachim, Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, Yeshayahu. Those are the longer Sfarim, and those are the Nevi'im that are usually from earlier in history. And the Nevi'im Acharonim are usually shorter Sfarim. They include Oshea, Amos, Micha, Malachi. There's a lot more. Think Treasar. Um, it's a very grave mistake to refer to the Nevi'im as minor or major. Um, we, we should be very careful when we're talking about these to refer to them as earlier or later because to call them major or minor would imply that one of their prophecies are more or less important, one of them is more or less binding, and that is certainly not the case. So I'll make one more note that the Ksuvim are usually not read as Haftorahs, although they are sometimes read publicly. So we're thinking about texts like Tehillim, Megillus Esther, Megillus Eicha, which we read on Tisha B'Av, etc. Um, certain occasions that we read those on usually also have their own separate Haftorahs in addition to the Megillah. So books that are coming from Ksuvim are not in and of themselves Haftorahs. So the name Haftorah, comes from the Hebrew Shoresh, or the Hebrew root word, from the letters He, Tes, Resh. And in the infinitive, that becomes Lehaftir, which means to release something. In the adjective form, it sounds like Patur, which you probably know from Halacha, and that means that to be exempt from something. So Rabbeinu Tam, who was one of Rashi's grandsons, explains that the Haftorah was named by this Shoresh, by this root, because of a halachic implication that reading Nevi'im actually has in the, the laws of, of davening. He explains that it's called haftorah after to exempt you from something because there's a prohibition of speaking during the actual reading of the Torah. And once the haftorah concludes, but before Musaf begins, you're technically exempt from that prohibition of speaking. So that's a bit of an explanation of why we call it how we call it. So some of our sources describe this practice going back all the way to the Second Temple period before the Second Temple was destroyed. So the Gemara discusses the Haftorahs for the four Parshios, which we've actually learned together, the four Parshios leading up from Parsha Shkalim a month before Pesach all the way sh through Shabbos HaGadol. Um, so the Gemara discusses the specific selections that are read on those four parshas, and Christian sources also mention this practice. Again, I don't want to give any 
religious relevance whatsoever to Christian sources, but we can look at these sources in strictly historical terms as being secondary sources from the time period. And there are some Christian sources that describe a scene in a shul um, where a scroll of, of the book of Yeshayahu is being read in public. So from secondary sources of this time, we see that this was a widespread practice, even though the fine details and halachas might not have been solidified yet by the end of the Second Temple period. This would also explain why both Sephardim and Ashkenazim have this practice to read the Haftorah, although there are subtle differences in Minhagim. Sometimes the Sephardim will read a longer or a shorter selection than the Ashkenazim. One might begin or end before or after the other. So now that we know what it is, where its name comes from, and where it's seen earliest in our sources. Let's talk a bit about why we do this. So I'd first like to give credit where credit is due. The ideas that I'm going to present from here on are from a shir that I listened to by Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. He teaches advanced Tanakh shirim at Yeshivat Haaretzion right here in Israel. And he has a series of two very in-depth shirim on this topic. Um, so I listened to them. They were very interesting. And if you're interested in, in hearing the at-length version, message me and I'll send you a link. Um, but for our purposes, I'm just condensing them a bit and simplifying them here so we can use the information for our own purposes. So, why do we do this? If someone asked you today why we read the Haftorah, um, chances are you might answer something along the lines of, well, we read the Haftorah because there was a time in Jewish history when the Greeks wanted to suppress Torah study, so they outlawed the reading of the Torah in public. We had to go undercover by reading the Nevi'im instead. So it's a nice thought, um, and it's even backed up by a source. This idea actually appears in a halacha sefer that was written by a Spanish rishon named the Abu Dram. The sefer is a commentary on the liturgy of the davening and halachas surrounding it, and why why we daven, what we daven, when we do. Um, and the Abu Dram mentions in his sefer that the half Torah, so to speak, replaces the Torah reading because at one point it was illegal to publicly read the Torah. Um, he backs this up with halakhic evidence. He actually says the Haftorahs are usually 21 psukim or longer because at one point they, so to speak, replaced the Parsha. We know that for an aliyah of the actual Torah reading, you have to read at least three psukim in order to make sure that the, the brachas that we say aren't, aren't being wasted, so to speak. So he he makes that parallel and says that because the Haftorah is usually 21 Pesukim, it's like we're replacing the Aliyahs for the Torah reading. So that's his theory. But when we look deeper into this, this isn't to say that the Abu Dram was wrong. It's not in any way to disrespect his ideas, but there are rabbis more recently that have looked into this and said this doesn't 100% make sense, and for several reasons. The first reason is um, during the time period in question, the time period when the Greeks were in what we call Israel, when they were in the land of Israel, Hellenization went way deeper, imparting Greek culture on the Jews in the land went way deeper than, than this description of them prohibiting us from reading Torah. Um, major mitzvahs like Kashrus, doing a bris milah, keeping Shabbos altogether were completely banned. So to say that they were you know, prohibiting Torah study so that we had to read the Nevi'im, it doesn't 100% make sense. The second reason is that even if the Greeks did want, if they did ban Torah study, 
why would they be doing it like this? Why would they forbid one part of the Torah from being studied and not others? Why would they forbid us from reading the Chumash publicly, but not forbid us from reading the Nevi'im? In a way, the messages that the, the Nevi'im are sending down about the dangers of assimilation, the dangers of leaving behind our Jewish heritage, those ideas that are in the Nevi'im would have been more threatening to the Greeks. So why would they let us read the Nevi'im, but not the Chumash? doesn't make a ton of sense. Third reason, so the Abu Dram, the source that we just spoke about, as I said, he's one of the Rishonim. He's one of the earliest commentators that comes after the Gemara was finished. Um, and no other sources from his time period cite the same reason for reading the Haftorah. He's the only one from this time period that cites this reason. The last reason, um, we have a halacha in the Mishnah Brewer's discussion of the halachas of the Haftorah. It says that although Haftorahs are usually 21 pesukim long, they can be shorter if they conclude their subject matter in fewer pesukim or if they come at the end of a sefer. And there's simply no more text to read as a result of that. We'll actually see that situation this coming week. Um, we're reading from Amos and we only have about eight pesukim. So that's a very real situation that can happen. So the Abu Dram's theory that the, the Haf Torah is quote-unquote replacing the minimum of 21 pesukim of the Parsha doesn't hold up when we look at this halacha more closely. So see, as we begin to interrogate this theory, it falls apart a bit. But if this isn't the reason, then what is? So there's another explanation proposed by Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch and Rav Ruben Margulies, which makes a lot more sense. So they see the Haftorah as a practice instituted within the wider context of sectarianism in early Jewish communities. So to understand the climate that this practice came out of, we need to step back a bit in history, put ourselves in that time period and understand what was going on. So towards the end of the Second Temple period, really before that, there were multiple sects of Judaism that began to form. You probably know some of them. So our rabbis were, were the mainstream. They were known as the Purushim, which in Hebrew literally means the explainers, or in English we'd call them Pharisees. So they're faced with this very difficult task of once the, t the second temple falls, they have to adjust Jewish practice to be practical and possible in a world where there's no temple. And that was a very, very difficult task. Their biggest threat was a sect known as the Tzedokim, so the Sadducees in English, if that's more familiar to you. So this, this class of Tzedokim, they're very wealthy, they're aristocratic, and they came heavily, heavily under the influence of Hellenism while that was going on. They had a lot of money, they had a lot of power, and therefore they had a lot of influence, and they drew a significant following. Um, I've asked this question to my teachers before, and they don't, we don't really have a straight answer um, for what exactly the population breakdown would have been for these two sects. We don't know exactly how many people were Tzedokim, and we don't know exactly how many would have identified more with the Purushim, with our rabbis, but we know that in terms of, of the, the evidence that we have, in terms of the influence, that, that Tzedokim were very strong. So these Tzedokim are making the argument that our rabbis were basically making a power grab by setting in place the foundations of how to practice Judaism in a temple-less world. And they denied rabbinic texts altogether, and they disregarded a lot of the words of the later Hebrew prophets because the prophets were warning against this exact type of activity. They were warning against denying the words of the rabbis. They were warning against not listening to the established Jewish authorities. And so the Tzedokim didn't like that, and they didn't want to listen to the words of the Nevi'im. So from this context, we see there's a substantial group of Jews who reject the, 
the oral Torah altogether. Their entire body of text was Chumash and not much else. And to imagine a post-Temple Judaism without the oral Torah is almost impossible. Oral Torah makes our entire lives today what they are. Um, in order to work without a temple, we have to know what davening looks like. We have to look, know what kashrus laws look like, Shabbos, holidays, halachas of business, marriage, divorce, conversion. The list goes on. You name it. Uh, Judaism without an oral Torah would be a completely different religion. To reference the Rambam again, like we talked about last week, three of his principles of faith touch on the importance of knowing that the oral Torah is true. His, his sixth principle states, I believe the words of the prophets are true. Number eight states, the Torah we have now is the same one that Moshe accepted at Har Sinai. Number nine states, we believe the Torah we have now will never be exchanged for another one. Converts, when they convert, are asked, do you accept the oral Torah as exactly as binding as the Chumash? Um, so this denial that the oral Torah and that the words of the Nevi'im can be true is a big deal. It's not, it's not something that's going to certainly not something that's going to help the Jewish community be more unified moving forward. So the rabbinic leaders of the time and their great wisdom instituted this practice of reading the Nevi'im in public spaces in order to do two things. Number one, we wanted to set ourselves as mainstream rabbinic Jews apart from the other factions that were splitting off. And number two is that we wanted to assert that these texts are part of our Torah. The words of the Nevi'im are just as binding, just as important of the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem, and neither of them can work without the other. We have to have both parts of our Torah in order to bring Judaism down to a practical level in this world. And our answer of why do we read the Haftorah from that is essentially that we instituted this practice to reaffirm the truth of the words of our Nevi'im in the face of those who were denying them. And although this conflict might seem like it's over, in a way, even thousands of years later, it's not. We still have you know, a lot of movements within Judaism of not liking what the rabbis have to say, not liking what, what the texts have to say, what the halacha has to say, saying that this is outdated, this doesn't apply in our world anymore. Um, but reading the Haftorah, really, at the end of the day, it's a statement of the truth of the rabbinic system. It's a statement of affirming that halacha is the right way to lead our lives. And it's a statement of confidence that Hashem has given and will give us good leaders to help us express our Judaism in a context where we have no temple. So um, I hope this gave you guys a bit more clarity as to why we're doing and learning what we are. And I also hope it gives you more meaning moving forward that um, these words of the Nevi'im are still true. They still apply to our lives. And even thousands of years later, they still speak directly to us. So if you have any questions, as always, be in touch and um, I'll see you guys Thursday. Have a wonderful week.